Hello, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the EIEI No Edition. It's Friday, April 1st, and I'm Mariam Ibrahim, your Press Gallery host and a legislature reporter for the Journal. It may be April Fool's Day, but there's no time for jokes after yet another busy week in Alberta politics. Joining me in the newsroom studio today are city columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Miss Marion. Health reporter Keith Gerine. Hello. And education reporter Janet French is back again. Hi. Hello, and thank you all for joining me on this Friday. It was not a foolish decision. I'm going to slip in as many of those puns <laughs> as I can. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Um, well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came to Alberta this week to sell his government's maiden budget. budget. Uh, there, there was some Trudeau mania, no doubt, but much of the Prime Minister's visit really focused on his government's decision to exclude the Edmonton area from extended employment insurance benefits. He didn't meet with the Premier while in town, but Rachel Notley did have some fresh criticism of his decision. Then, a story from yours truly this week revealed that while the NDP government here in Alberta has achieved gender parity in its caucus and cabinet, the highest ranks of the civil service reveal a drastically different picture. What needs to happen to begin to change that? But first, this week, the long-awaited deadline for school boards to submit their LGBTQ policies to Education Minister David Egan has finally arrived. Egan gave reporters an update this week on the policies he's received and what will come next. Now, Janet, you interviewed the minister on Thursday. First, fill us in on the latest developments. Have all 61 school boards submitted their policies to the minister? Not quite. They are one shy. All 60 did by the end of Thursday. And then uh, the one that we expected not to file was Lethbridge. uh, And that was because parents who petitioned Lethbridge's public school board forced a delay. As far as private schools, about 80% of private schools in Alberta have sent their policies in and all 13 charter schools did file. And did the minister have anything to say about the process, you know, what he heard from school boards throughout this, these sort of months of, of you know, discussion over this? He's been pretty diplomatic uh, and fr- friendly. Yeah, careful. Yeah, that would be a good <laughs> word. Find the right words here. Yeah, uh, certainly, certainly holding the cards close to his chest in terms of the, the tenor of discussions that he's having with them. Well, reading your story today, it sounds like the minister will have uh, quite a variety of policies, you know, in some Indeed. cases, sort of standalone policies. In some cases, these these sort of guidelines were written into existing policies. And in some cases, boards submitted nearly identical policies. Tell us more about that. The school divisions could send in a policy, which is supposed to be at the board level, and then also write administrative procedures, which is the how do we do this? And some decided to do both of that in one document. Some decided to keep it separate. He claims that it doesn't fuss him either way how they structure their paperwork. Uh, Now, some documents are very, very similar, um, down to some of them even use the same fonts uh, and and looks as if they've just cut and paste the, uh, you know, each school division's mission statement into the document and and, you know, replace their their school division names. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, you know, perhaps if they're drawing from the same best practice model or guideline, that wouldn't necessarily be problematic. But Paula, what does it say about how seriously the boards are actually engaging with this process of writing these policies that can actually be implemented in the schools? In a certain peculiar way, I suppose this exercise has indicated a bit the continuing independence of school boards because they've approached this very differently. Uh, I thought it was interesting 
uh, in light of Janet's story. We know what a disaster this has been for the Edmonton Catholic School Board. It ripped the school board apart. All you know had the the province had to appoint a special, you know, consultant consultant to of. teach them some table manners. Uh, I mean, it's been very ugly, very, very public. In contrast, the Calgary Catholic School Board didn't have any kind of public discussion at all. They said, oh, well, it's all fine because we've kind of been doing this anyway in house. We don't need any more discussion of this. Ah, oh, okay. So that's very two different two different, very different management strategies. And some, like Red Deer, where you might not expect a lot of progressive LBGQT thinking, and you'd be wrong, uh, because in Red Deer they have a very progressive standalone policy that articulates things very clearly. Uh, other Catholic boards have indeed used boilerplate language, uh, I think, to indemnify themselves against criticism. They'll all, they'll all go into this together. And, and, and you know, we know that the Catholic boards cooperate closely and you know, have a doctrinal similarity that unites them. So that's not wholly unexpected, although it shows a little, you know, a certain lack of creativity. If students do that, they get in big trouble. We call that plagiarism. You are supposed to show some original thought. So Egan is going to have a very delicate balance to strike here because some of these policies on their face clearly do not seem to be in compliance with the full spirit of what was intended. Well, like that, that's really interesting what you say about the fact that there, there is such a variety. Janet, one example that you uh, had was in Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray um, Catholic, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, there seemed to be sort of one one clause in their guideline that seemed to, to really sort of, well, not fall in line with sort of the spirit of the guidelines. Tell us about that. Uh, so in Fort McMurray Catholic, they've actually got... Uh, a line in there that says the principal will assign transgender students non-gender bathrooms and private change rooms, which when you talk to Chris Wells, who's the um, a professor at the University of Alberta in minority, sexual minority studies, he says that's if he was a board member, he'd be very uncomfortable with that because it actually could open them up to liability for human rights complaint. That That's essentially the nature of the human rights complaint for Edmonton Catholic that got this whole business started in the first right. place. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we don't know how these policies are going to translate in real life. I, how can they then even, like, how do they get enforced? If the boards are resisting, is it going to be a matter of these things getting tested at, at the Human Rights Tribunal? Like, what? Well, I don't think it'll need to go as far as the Human Rights Tribunal, but I think any time now that a student comes forward, and let us remember, we're talking about a very small minority of students. There's not going to be this sudden, uh, you know, stampede of people to, you know, to test these rules. But I think when it does come up, it will give each individual student and each individual family a, a place to say, hey, you know, this is not what is supposed to happen. Um, it, it, it is really interesting. I mean, you contrast what's happening in the United States this week, where you saw the government of North Carolina, uh, the state assembly, was called back for an emergency session because Charlotte, North Carolina, had brought in a regulation saying that there would be accommodation for trans people. And uh, in North Carolina, this was apparently a statewide cause for emergency, <laughs> uh, where they brought in legislation that forbids any municipality, any university, or any school board from making any such similar kind of bathroom law. Mm. So uh, I think this is going to be a process. And I think that maybe for a rural board, having a unisex bathroom where people can go for privacy isn't a horrible step on the way compromise. Uh, you know, I think we have to be realistic about how quickly this social change and this social transformation are happening. 
But you're right, Miriam, the first time some kid is discriminated against, this is going to have to be there as a backstop for that child and for their, that family. Keith, you've covered the government a lot. You, you've sort of seen how issues can sort of get away from government. Right, sure. Land use bills come to mind. Bill six, you know, thing, you know, government sort of not anticipating the reaction or, you know, not handling the sort of delicate nature of, of navigating these kinds of things. How careful does the education minister have to be to not alienate the boards? Because, I mean, we've already seen that there can be a lot of pushback. Yeah, it's it's a tricky issue. And, and uh, he is going to have to walk that line, I think, as Paula said, that there will be uh, some boards who are quite eager and, and even ahead of the game in this. There will be others, uh, maybe some in rural areas that are haven't quite thought about this issue a lot, not entirely sure how to deal with it. Uh, and they won't want to be pushed too far uh, too fast. And so, uh, yeah, he's, it's going to be interesting to see how he kind of deals with that and, and whether he will uh, push forward on enforcement. Th- there's a difference, though, here. I think in a lot of those other bills... Um, that have driven rural areas in particular crazy. Uh, they've had the wild rose to to really kind of uh, That's a really good fuel, fuel the flames of those. Those were easy issues, easy, easy wedge issues for the wild rose. This issue, I'm not so sure, is yeah. easy for the wild rose. It kind of ties them up on in knots in terms of h- how to handle this. So I think, uh, at least in that respect, Egan won't have too much of the wild rose breathing down his neck on this one. Long before the NDP were in power, um, the Tories were finding themselves, they would hit these hot-button rural issues, and there would be this huge backlash, this huge wellspring of fury. In this case, you can see, I mean, I listened to an interview on CBC of a, an activist mom from Lethbridge trying very hard to, you know, I'm not homophobic, but, um, and it was all about parental rights. And so that's the discourse that they're trying to use, which goes back to Ted Morton's, you know, favorite kind of phraseology. This is about, this isn't about trans kids. This is about parental rights. This is about parents being informed. That's the, 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 the lexicon that they're using. The problem is, as Keith alludes to, as soon as you tiptoe up to Lake of Fire, the beach of the Lake of Fire, (laughs) I am happy to say that we have evolved our political discourse in this province to the point where no legitimate politician wants to come out and gay bash. And I think we should congratulate ourselves for that. (laughs) It's not that long ago that gay bashing seemed to be like a legitimate political strategy around here. But we have at least got to the point where nobody wants to come out and say that they are opposed to gay kids. So you have to try to code it. And the coded language is parental rights. Well, we want parents to have the choice. We want parents to be informed. Well, Janet, what comes next then at this point? Well, I think that's the most interesting part of this is is not even what's in the policies or how did they get there, but what does Egan do with this big stack of homework he received? (laughs) Uh, And um, he has a lot of options before him, right? He can... uh, he can go back and forth and insist they rewrite and keep revising them until he's satisfied. Uh, and uh, he technically could impose his own policies if he wanted to. Um, and, you know, some critics have suggested, well, if, he, if he's not satisfied that the policies do what he wants them to do, he should withhold funding or perhaps even just fire the whole board, which he's very, every time that option comes up, he's like, no, 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 he's not going there. Um, you know, but it's an option available to him. And of course, he comes up at the end of the day, not just against the Wild Rose, but against the Catholic Church. And, you know, 
it's interesting because now that we have public boards pushing back about this, it's not just a question of the rights of Catholic education. In some ways, curiously, I think this has been good for Egan because now it's not just about, you know, David Egan versus the Archbishop. Mm. It's about all of us going on this journey together to a place of understanding well, and that tolerance. So idealistic. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, uh, switching topics now to one I've had the opportunity to write about often over my uh, short career here at the journal, women in politics. Uh, so earlier this month, our colleague, uh, City Hall reporter Elise Stolte, published a story that showed that Linda Cochran, who has since become the permanent city manager, was the sole woman on the city of Edmonton's corporate management team. That was the inspiration for a story that I did this week where I uh, looked at the civil service in Alberta and uh, revealed uh, at, at the highest levels of the civil service in Alberta and revealed that women account for just 29% of, you know, those most senior public service roles, deputy minister, associate deputy ministers. And I think some people sort of would have been maybe surprised by these numbers that of the 24 positions, seven are held by women, uh, especially because, you know, the Notley government got so much attention last year after the election for having a caucus that had gender parity and then for appointing a cabinet that had gender parity and maintaining that parity through a few cabinet shuffles. Um, so so that, that I thought was uh, interesting, just sort of interesting thing to sort of look at. So, Keith, you've covered the legislature, obviously, quite a bit over the years. Has the makeup of the deputy ministers and the associate deputy ministers, has it changed much from the Tory years? You know, it's a really good question. It's a really difficult question to answer as well. Just based on my own limited observations, and my sense of it is that things are slightly better in the Notley years. When months, I went, months, yeah, yeah. My, yeah. But, uh, you know, since trying to back that up, trying to find actual numbers, uh, and I went a little, you know, some did some digging on the internet to try and find some numbers, and there just aren't a lot of, ex- you know, accessible records uh, on the internet about what was the makeup of DMs and ADMs, you know, 10, 15, yeah. or even five years ago. But I, I, I did find a couple of examples. So uh, Alison Redford's, one of her first cabinets and and. Uh, DM lineups was available on the internet. Uh, And she, uh, who must be said, did not put a lot of women in her cabinet, uh, also did not have a lot of women in her uh, deputy minister lineup. So of the 19 deputy ministers she had in in 2012, only three of them were women. Wow. Uh, And then sort of fast forwarding to Prentice, uh, he also kind of continued that trend. It got marginally better of the 21 deputy ministers uh, uh, in his lineup, uh, only five were women. So it's a slight increase in percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now to have seven out of however many, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that again, it, it's marginally better, but just marginally. It's, it's, not a, it's not a big improvement. So what are these, what do deputy ministers do? Who, who are these people? What are they responsible for? Yeah, they are. Everything. Hu- <laughs> yeah, they are hugely influential, hugely important people in the government, uh, more important than the ministers in some respects, which is why they get paid more than the ministers do. Uh, so they are the subject matter experts in their particular area. They uh, they have to advise the minister, uh, and the ministers often rely on that advice, advice a great deal. Uh, they're the people who have to get things done. They implement government policy. Uh, and they have to be really strong managers as well. They they are the boss of the of the people in their area, uh, uh, you know, very senior people as well. So that, so they they require a lot of skill, 
uh, a lot of expertise and it's hard to find good people there's not a lot of people out there with this kind of skill set out there well and it is worth noting i do want to just say that uh the current uh deputy minister of executive council richard discerny who's uh someone who was appointed actually by jim prentice but was was uh retained by the notley government he's being replaced as the uh, deputy minister of executive council which is the, the most important and senior ministry it's the premier's ministry essentially uh by marcia nelson so uh that's that's definitely worth noting but paula i want to ask you you know why do we talk about this why do why do we talk about gender makeup among people who are in these senior leadership roles who do wield this power as, as keith speaks about well as prime minister justin trudeau would say because it's 2016 uh <laughs> be- and because i think it's logical that the more reflective of your actual population, your managers of the population are, the more sensitive they will be to issues that affect a broader number of people. I mean, and we're just talking about gender equity. Um, you know, otherwise, it's a bunch of middle-aged white guys in the main. So it's not very reflective of the reality of Alberta, not nearly as reflective as uh, the MLAs are themselves. And it's interesting because this is one of those eternal chicken and egg arguments. As Keith says, you need very senior people with very uh, developed management skills for these roles. And it's hard to recruit them if you don't have a place from whence to recruit them. Now, it's interesting that traditionally, culture has often had a female deputy minister. I mean, health has sometimes had a female deputy minister because health administration is often a, a place where women, strong women have excelled. Yeah. But where does the government go to recruit deputy ministers? To its own ranks, but also it's gone in the past to the military, to the University of Alberta, to the healthcare system, to the city of Edmonton. Uh, so if you're recruiting from ponds that don't have development programs for senior women managers, you're, you're going to keep fishing out of the same pool of men. You know, this isn't to me about tokenism. This isn't saying, well, we have to have 50% women, so we'll go find some women, we'll fire some men, and we'll put some women in. So Which then we is, are fi- I have to say, what a lot of the criticism of my story boiled down to on Twitter and in emails I got was, why don't you just why aren't you just say being honest and telling everybody that you just don't want men in these positions and it's no, you know of course what, it's obviously not about want, that what we want are the best people we and also I, and want I would, women and I would, to be able to be the and best I, I would put it to you that there are some good really good women out there whose skills and genius we are not tapping into to help us run our province and our city this year marks the 100th anniversary of women in Alberta getting the vote. It's been almost 100 years since Alberta elected its first female MLAs, Roberta McAdams and Louise McKinney. I mean, this is not a difficult concept. <laughs> We're 50% of the population and, you know, on balance, reasonably smart. Well, and before we leave this topic, I do want to just mention uh, the journal editorial on the subject, which made an important point, I think. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm just going to read an excerpt. With so much energy being invested in coping with Alberta's difficult economic situation, it would be easy for an issue like gender parity to fall off the agenda. That is something to guard against, uh, reads the editorial. Organizations are more successful when they have a diversity of opinion at the table. And I think that last point is crucial because one of the people I spoke to for my story actually said that when you do have a diversity of experiences and, and uh, different kind of people around the table, your organization is actually more successful. It actually helps the bottom line. You actually retain more employees. So even if you don't want to do it to just be more diverse and have a more represent representative organization, it makes sense economically. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Uh, all right. Our final segment today is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's visit to Calgary and Edmonton this week. 
In both cities, the prime minister was swarmed with adoring fans. Uh, in the case of Edmonton, uh, hundreds of people crammed into the Millwoods library. I was there. They were trying to they were craning their necks like gleeful absolutely smitten uh snapping selfies i mean he was kissing babies it was it it was it was trudeau mania you know i and i had never witnessed this obviously paula what's behind this phenomenon well it is fascinating because the last time justin trudeau was here as you know as campaigning party leader people were reasonably chuffed to see him but not like this so it, it is you know it is certainly the kind of snowballing effect of celebrity he's a winner he's in power he's been to America he had dinner with Barack Obama uh, we saw him through American eyes and we see all these you know uh, foreign dignitaries swooning over him and so it sort of increases I think his cool factor to us back at home. But I think also uh, it was very canny of Trudeau and his people. He went to visit uh, Mill Woods, which is Amarjeet Sohi's riding. So that's in part to boost Amarjeet Sohi, who mm -hmm. will remember, uh, did not win by a landslide. Um, <laughs> and But I think that the, the people who were there were very legitimately thrilled to see him. Now, I mean, it is impossible to have... Well, I should say it is not impossible. I was going to say it's impossible to have a bad photo op surrounded by adorable children and books and stuffed animals. In fact, Stephen Harper, poor Stephen Harper, always looked very awkward in those, <laughs> in, in those circumstances. Um, but, you know, when Justin Trudeau kisses a baby, the baby looks impressed. I mean, Miriam, tell, tell, tell everybody about the fist bump picture. There was a baby at one of the photo ops who... A, to a toddler. A toddler, yeah, who, who toddled up to the prime minister uh, at his sort of mother's urging and then just sort of lifted his fist to give uh, the prime minister a like props with his fist. It was... It was pretty cute, I gotta admit. Um, <laughs> Miriam will post the picture online, but... Uh, I but, can do that too. But, but there was a case of, of him holding a baby who then burst into tears immediately, actually. Well, I joked on Twitter that that baby was the, like, the least impressed person in the room. <laughs> um, okay, okay. But, 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 not everything, yeah. but not everything was about the hype, because no. certainly he did get a lot of criticism over, as we uh, talked about uh, actually last week, just last week, um, the extended EI benefits not being uh, extended to Edmonton. Um, Keith, remind us again quickly about the nuts and bolts of the, that decision. Why don't we qualify in the Edmonton region? Yeah, so this was a decision that was released in the budget, and uh, basically the federal government picked 12 regions around the country that had experienced uh, what they described as sort of the, the um, highest jump in, in unemployment. Uh, in uh, in the last uh, year or so, and uh, all of Alberta except for the Edmonton region was was included in that. Uh, and the benefit is essentially five extra weeks of benefits to paying out up to a maximum of fifty weeks. So Edmonton uh, and and its region didn't qualify because I guess our unemployment didn't jump quite enough. That it was two percent that they were using as a benchmark, and ours had risen by one point eight percent. That's right. right yeah. So, Paula, uh, the Prime Minister, said this is just cold, hard math. Oh, dear. Math is hard in Alberta. Um, <laughs> I was actually surprised by the clumsiness with which Trudeau expressed himself on this point. Because I will say this. It's because he, that was the fourth question on it that he got. And so at some point he had to, to stop using the talking points, I think, is, is, is where we, we got that answer from. Yeah, well, and that's very revealing because if you can't move off your talking points without sticking your foot in your mouth, well, then you can have my job. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I... I there is, of course, a complete logic 
to what happened here, as I tried to explain last week, um, EI benefits have always been uh, graded based on the local unemployment rate. So people in Newfoundland get more benefits than people in Saskatoon. That is just how that works. Um, and is it unfair? Well, in the sense that we're not all being treated equally, it is unfair. In the sense that it's based on local conditions and is micromanaged to be about local conditions, I don't think that is perforce unfair. The problem is that Trudeau came off looking cold and uncaring, which is not in keeping with the Trudeau persona. He did He did seem to sort of stick his foot in his mouth a few times this week. Janet, you looked into some of the numbers. Should we be ple- uh, pleased that we were in his hard hit? I mean, he had to draw the line somewhere, right, with all government policies. Yeah. Um, however, might it not be overly simplistic to assume that the Edmonton area is completely economically isolated from the rest of the province? If you think about how many people drive into or out of the capital region for work. Yeah. Uh, or, or to Fort McMurray to do that kind of shift work where you're, you're, you know, seven on, five off. There's lots of people who live in Edmonton and do that. Yeah. And um, although the overall unemployment rate may not have exploded, Claire Theobald, our colleague, just reported yesterday that the number of people year over year who are claiming unemployment in the Edmonton area has risen by almost 50 percent. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the problem, too, of course, is that what EI measures is who's eligible for EI benefits. So it doesn't include people who have been laid off and are on salary continuance. So those numbers haven't been counted yet. It also doesn't include, and this is much trickier, all of the contract workers in this province. There are a tremendous number of people working in the energy sector and in the construction sector who are on contract. They're not eligible for EI anyway. So it's very difficult to measure their unemployment. Alberta is hard to measure by the same metrics that we've used to measure unemployment in other districts and in other times. I just think that there's this like Alberta thing, like in our Al- collective Alberta psyche where we're sort of, I mean, the, it's it's the factor of, I think, a liberal prime minister, the the West thing where we, we feel that the East is always sort of trying to screw us over and we contribute so much and look, we've been contributing to employment insurance for so long and now that we finally need it, it's not being extended to us as as well as everybody else, which is sort of the the line of, of thinking that the premier came out with on Thursday to say, you know, this isn't this doesn't make sense. We've been, you know, providing to the national economy and, uh, you know, Whitehorse and Saskatoon have lower unemployment rates than Edmonton. But because it's increased by more they qualified um, and sort of just it, it seems to me that there's the, this kind of perpetual defensiveness like they're out to get us over in Ottawa and and look here's yet more proof of it I thought Rachel not I mean I thought Rachel Notley's handling of this from a political perspective was quite brilliant because this is what she needed to do I'm not saying that it's good policy I'm not saying that it makes sense but my goodness it was good politics um, to beat up on Justin Trudeau and be a staunch defender of the Alberta worker that's the kind of messaging she needs right now because if there's one thing Rachel Notley knows it's that math isn't hard if you're counting votes Uh, well on that note we're going to leave it there but before we end let's get to some good stuff from the gallery our panelists will share with you their favorite read watch or listen doesn't have to be about politics but it usually is Paula what do you got oh I think you start with Keith oh okay me okay I've been been directed (laughs) because Keith Keith, Keith has 
I've got dessert and Keith has dinner. Oh, okay. uh, uh, I've been reading a lot about the the coverage of the Rob Ford death. Okay. So uh, and uh, really kind of struggling, I guess, to think to, to decide how I kind of feel about this man who is obviously a you know a national embarrassment as a as a public figure uh, as mayor of Toronto, but also clearly had this uh, kind of zest for life and this compassion for the the people that he served. Um, and so I'm struggling to kind of to what's this guy's legacy? How should I feel about this guy? How should I, you know, how should I tell future generations about Rob Ford? Yeah. Who was he? And I think the best piece that kind of captured all of that um, and, and how people are, are feeling about him uh, was written by one of our former colleagues here, Richard Warnica at the National Post. I thought it, not only is it beautifully written, but I think it just strikes the right tone. Yeah. It's honest about who he was as a, as a politician and as a person. That's a really actually great it was recommendation. A, it was a very good piece. Yeah, I read it as well. Paula? Dessert. Right. Dessert. Uh, I'm going to recommend one of my favorite bits of comic music for April Fool's Day. It is a 1952 song by the great American chanteuse Sophie Tucker, the last of the Red Hot Mamas. And it's called Sophie Tucker for President. It's her campaign song for when she ran for president in 1952, uh, campaigning for better loving conditions for America's women. In every closet a mink coat, in every boudoir a man. Um, and she said that, you know, women should have the right to a man who arrived with a big kosher salami and a bottle of Manischewitz wine to their door. <laughs> it is awesome. And Sophie Tucker is not as famous now as she was once but i'm i'm campaigning for a sophie tucker revival and you should all start by listening to sophie tucker for president quite the interesting recommendation paula (laughs) thank you i'm kind of happy we're recording today on april fool's day (laughs) janet if paula have dessert i have junk food (laughs) the midnight snack the midnight snack which is uh calgary dad ryan sauve's rapt response to the uh criticism and blowback over the school lgbtq policies right and this better was, better watched than described by me and that was in response to the other alberta parents. the interesting video by the mom who sort of raps and sings to yeah. some kind of synth track on a sound stage yeah in very uh careful terms yeah. about really is this is is are uh guidelines are, yeah are, are guidelines really the most important issue in education right she now? called it a fender bender over sex and gender mine goes very nicely with janet's mine is uh my good stuff is if i can find out where i've scrawled it um susan kent's segment on the sour house 22 minutes in response to that alberta mother who did her rapping video rapping videos for everybody today <laughs> enjoy you have one for every day of the week uh, weekend if you want one all right well thanks very much we'll be sure to post those links online everybody that's a wrap on this uh, episode of the press gallery you can find this episode and an archive of past editions on the website at edmontonjournal.com opinion you can also listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and via TuneIn Radio. Subscribe, and a fresh edition of the Press Gallery will be delivered right to you. Thank you to Paula, Keith, and Janet, along with Sean Butts, our videographer this week. And of course, thank you all for listening. I'm Miriam Ibrahim, and we'll be back next week in the Press Gallery.